Hey guys, today I have prepared for you a very whimsical, uplifting, and fun episode, but not wholesome at all. We are talking about high strangeness, you know. It is a source of trauma and fear for a lot of people, but is the other truly scary, or are we the ones projecting our fears onto it? And joining me today is Kate, known as Steam Powered Mouse. She is a friend I met on Twitter who acts as a support person for the community. And through assuming this role, she has realized that the paranormal is not always the dark, terrifying stuff as promoted by the mainstream, but that there is also a certain type of playfulness to the paranormal. And today we sat down to talk about introducing whimsiness and playfulness to the phenomenon, co-creating with it a more positive experience, because the phenomenon often reflects back what you provide it, and that it is oftentimes a certain type of mirror to our own subconsciousness, manifesting our own fears and anxieties, and oftentimes serving as our own support and a way for us to self-reflect with our own shadow selves. Okay, with me today is Steam Powered Mouse, or Kate, <laughs> rather. Hello, Kate. Yeah. Hello. Uh, can you explain to me why Steam Powered Mouse? I always wanted to ask you that. Um, yeah, uh, it's actually kind of a triple entendre about stuff. My star sign, my zodiac, is in Aries, which is a fire thing, and uh, I'm actually have a big water sign in my chart and make steam. So I guess it's kind of like I I have a little bit of a fire. That's my. Uh, it's it sounds so ridiculous when I explain it out loud, but. <laughs> Okay, and I assume the mouse is from the Chinese zodiac as well. It is not actually oh. that. Uh, that is an old nickname of mine. So I am the steam-powered mouse because I have a little bit of fire in me, is what I've been told. So that's kind of <laughs> where that came from, and that's sort of the name I use for my graphic design and things like that. That's interesting. I had Teresa on my show, and mm -hmm. she goes by Fire Breathing Unicorn. So yeah. I was thinking, <laughs> are you guys related with your nicknames? <laughs> no, no, but this one came from. Uh, I actually used to play a lot of tabletop role-playing games, so mm -hmm. that's kind of where that came from. And for my listeners, can you introduce yourself, your role in the community, uh, if you see yourself as having a role? Well, you know, it's kind of funny you say that because my name is Kate, and my day job is graphic design, uh, production art. But you know what's sort of funny is you talk about having a role in a, a community. I guess I'm just kind of a support person, but I've noticed in my life that I sort of dip my toes into many communities. And sometimes, you know, it's a little lonely because it feels like I'm not fully part of something, but it allows me to experience so many different things. So I guess if I had a role in any community, it would be kind of a support and just I love to learn. So I love to talk to people and learn about new things. So I, I guess that would kind of be uh, it. Uh, sometimes I have a friend who says I'm, I'm the guy in the chair, like, you know, in all the spy movies and stuff, you have the, the people out doing all the action, but then you have the person in the chair and the command center, given the information and the maps and all that, that I'm, I'm a little bit like that. I'm a little bit mm -hmm. of a silent partner sometimes. So I guess that would be my role. It's interesting because uh, like, okay, you're, you're basically the healer of the, 
Yes. <laughs> fantasy role-playing uh, group. Yes. <laughs> but it's a role that a lot of people play but are never acknowledged for it because we only mm. talk about the heroes, you know. But the heroes mm. would not be there and do the, what they do without their support. Are you aware of uh, Where Did the Road Go, the podcast? Uh, yes, I've listened to a few episodes. Yes. So uh, oftentimes on the podcast, there's a Saxon, or also known as Super Inframan, mm -hmm. as the support role of the podcast because <laughs> Soraya is the, you know, main host. Mm -hmm. And when I started talking with uh, Saxon, I'm like, dude, I want you on my podcast <laughs> but it was kind of tricky finding a way to incorporate him because he never was the central point of any any you know conversation he sees himself as the figure who supports the conversation and helps it move forward yeah. so i had a round table with him and todd talking about comic books and he shined <laughs> there like he was the main focal point of that episode and so much information from him but by providing him the the to assume the support role that he is accustomed with he was able to um to to shine with his knowledge yeah yeah it's um you know it's funny i don't really think about it that much it is slightly unnatural for me to be a focal point but i think sometimes in the times that i've had to do it um because i think of it as okay, I'm stepping in to do this to support the overall thing. I've mm -hmm. I've been able to, but I can, yeah, I can definitely understand how if you're used to that, it's a little, it's a little strange to suddenly be front and center, but <laughs> no, I guess it's not bad. It's not bad sometimes. <laughs> I wish that I knew this before having you on <laughs> so I oh, can make no. a better strategy. Oh um, no, it'll, it'll be fine. I, you know, I like to say I'm kind of a um, situational extrovert. Mm -hmm. Like, um, you know, if the situation arises, it's, I'm fine. Like uh, things I often would end up doing would be um, I worked for a band, like, you know, a small localish band for about mm, seven or eight years. And something I would do would be run their merchandise table. And, you know, while that's a support role, I have to be talking to a lot of people. I have to do that. I volunteered uh, at the Center for Puppetry Arts in Atlanta for different events where we would demo puppets and like walk around with puppets. And so I would have to like talk to people and stuff. So it's it's something I don't think about, but I guess ultimately I don't mind it if I need to. <laughs> uh, what I'm getting at is that I was thinking and thinking for over a month now, like, what are we going to talk about? Like how we got into contact is I mm -hmm. posted that I bought David Weatherly's Strange Intruders book. And you were like, hey, I love that book. And I love all that stuff, you know, creepy, <laughs> black eyed children and uh, smiling, grinning man and stuff like that. And I'm mm -hmm. like, hey, let's talk about Beck's black eyed children. Um, <laughs> and we've been pondering and pondering over that for over a month now. How are we going to talk about Bex? And now I'm like, you know what? I, I don't feel like talking about them at all. <laughs> because when I think about Beck's Black Eyed Children, they're like children who are devoid of any type of childhood, any, anything whimsical, goofy that, that we mm -hmm. associate with children. And I listened to your appearance on Vanessa's show, Personal Pans. It was an amazing conversation. I loved mm -hmm. it. Thank you. Uh, yes. And it was about playfulness and the paranormal. And I'm like, yes, that's exactly what we want to, uh, what we need to talk about, because this is something that I also approve of. And I also perceive the paranormal as very uh, whimsical, playful, even like cartoony. I see it as uh, kind of delving into cartoon logic, car uh, a cartoony universe that seeps mm -hmm. into reality in a way. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's for sure. And and something that is something I've encountered in my life is that um, people assume that 
if you're someone who is more whimsical or, or playful that you are not professional or you are unable to have reverence or take something seriously. And I find that it's not an either or, it can be a yes and. Like, um, you know, talking about the paranormal, there are things that, you know, I approach them with respect and I can approach them with reverence. But ultimately, like you said, you know, it, it's just, it's strange, it's weird. And we have to kind of approach it with that positivity sometimes because, you know, I feel like a lot of things, especially if they, if, if things are energetic beings, like a lot of people think that some things are energetic beings. If you approach them with a certain energy, then they're going to mirror that back at you. And that's how you get in trouble. I mean, like all the folklore about the fair folk and fairies and things like that, it's all about how you approach it. And there is a lot of things in the paranormal that are, that are mischievous. And sometimes I think it's a misunderstanding because, you know, if these things exist and they're vibrating on a different frequency or in a different plane of existence, they just may not be able to communicate the same way we can. So something they might say, much like in some of our conversations, might have initially come across as being uh-huh. misunderstood. And until you kind of open yourself up to say, okay, I'm going to think more about that, or I'm going to look at that from a different angle, it might seem scary or or a little unnerving, but ultimately it's communication in the way that it's able, you know, that's, that's kind of how I look at it a little bit. That reflects how you felt about being on my show, because you told me that initially, you were afraid of me. I, I did. I did. Um, I've had, you know, and, and I, I appreciate your grace with that. I've had some not so great experiences with people. And partially it's it's because I have to admit it's it's because of the way I am. I understand that sometimes I come across as a little naive or things like that. And because some of my core values are, are harmony and just trying to have this positive outlook, I have occasionally gotten myself into situations where the other person had nefarious you know plans for me or got me into a situation and kind Uh of made me the the butt of the joke and you know it was just something that had happened to me in the past but that's why i try and look at things from multiple angles and at least give it a chance you see that i've learned (laughs) sorry uh i forgot what i wanted to say (laughs) (laughs) it's the pixies man it is it is the pixies Ah, they made me cough so I can forget what I wanted to say. Okay, listeners, like, we're going to be talking about playfulness in the paranormal, which is something that I thought I can only uh, talk about with Todd, because Todd is, you know, all uh, fun and sunshine. (laughs) But Kate here uh, seems to really understand uh, what's going on. That episode with Vanessa on Personal Pans is amazing. I'm going to link it in the episode description. But everything you said makes perfect sense. Now, when I'm thinking about playfulness in the paranormal, I can't can't help because I'm the type of guy I already told you who talks about things that piss me off. Um, mm-hmm. but the things that make me happy, I don't really talk about them. <laughs> <laughs> but what pisses me off is this tendency of people to try and turn the whimsiness, the playfulness of the paranormal into something scary because we know that scary sells. Yeah. So wh- why do you think there is always a tendency to focus on the fear aspect of the paranormal and cherry pick it out uh, and disregard anything that is goofy or whimsical? That's um, That's a pretty big question. I would say that because... Well, like you said, fear, fear and sensationalism sells. And, you know, it's interesting you said that you recognize in yourself a tendency to talk about things that upset you 
mm-hmm. more than you talk about things that you like, that's actually a, a pretty normal thing. Like, um, say you are in a relationship and you have a fight with your significant other, you are more likely to go talk to your best friend about the fight than tell them when your significant other like made your favorite food or did something special for you. Because I think part of the human condition is you know, it's easy to express joy, it's harder to express pain. And so I think sometimes with that sort of thing, it creates a kind of connection, not necessarily a good one, but I think ultimately, and you know, one that's very natural and necessary to a point. But then when I think, like you said, they they cherry pick out the scary stuff, it puts you kind of at the same level with everybody else. And because overall, the paranormal is something that is misunderstood, people have a tendency to fear what they don't understand first before, you know, they they move to an area of comfort with it or anything like that. So I think that can be part of it as well, just kind of creating that sensationalism and outrage and, and things like that. For some reason, sometimes it's easier to connect with the more base negative leaning emotions than it is with joy. And I think that is something that has been pushed aside a lot because, you know, there are a lot of terrible things that happen and people come together in times of crisis. But it's it's like a trauma bonding almost like, oh, my goodness, we went through this terrible thing together and we have come out the other side. And in a way, it almost kind of creates a, a high like we went through the scary house and we faced the scary thing and we came out the other side. And it's a little bit of a rush, too, I think, for some people as well. You brought up so many ideas now in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> so when I think about, let's say, what you said, if if a significant other of mine had a fight with me I, and I'd go tell a friend everything negative instead of sharing something positive, mm-hmm. usually in my life, this is me personally, my personal life, I never really share positive stuff except with my mother, let's say. Um, mm-hmm. I don't even share with my grandmother for these reasons. When I talk about something that makes me happy, the other person would dismiss it, disregard it, brush it off, uh, mm-hmm. try to make me seem like a fool for being happy. And that hurts much, much more, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, being dismissed for, for what, what you enjoy and who you truly are. But it's much easier to just outrage over something because you don't even have to care much about that. You can just generate outrage and trauma bond with other people over that. I see with the paranormal, like there is how we personally engage with it. Like I have a paranormal experience and what it means to me personally, the stuff that I won't share publicly. Mm-hmm. But what is shared publicly is something completely different. Um, there's the personal uh, paranormal and then there is the public paranormal. Yeah. Well, and that makes sense too, because, you know, I am someone who, you know, I try to be sort of thoughtful about the things I share. And I have found that in my life, there are things that are very private, you know, even if it's not something super significant, it might be something that, you know, it's just for you. And that feeling is just for you. And it doesn't feel good to share it with someone else, even if it is something positive, you know, it's it's like things like that. Um, mm-hmm. And definitely when you have people in your life 
life like you have, and, and I have too had those experiences where you are trained to not express joy or express excitement or any of these positive emotions, you find that you start to, to keep those to yourself more often. And the thing is, a lot of the root of those sorts of treating people that sort of way comes from the other person. It's a lot of projection. Like I had some very not so great people in my life who would be angry when I was happy or be angry if I was excited. And over time, I learned that 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 was kind of a projection of feelings they had about themselves. And now I have a few more people in my life who tell me their good things and I tell them my good things and we can share that together. But it, it truly is not as common, not as common. And I'd like to definitely see more of that in, in culture. But a lot of times when that happens, yeah, it's, it's kind of unfortunate that it's the other person, you know, for mm-hmm. some reason, your joy reminds them of something that they didn't have or they didn't get and they project that outwards. And I, I think that does happen a lot. And in the paranormal, I think that can happen too, especially if someone is afraid and there's nothing wrong with fear. There absolutely is nothing wrong with fear, but someone who is very, very afraid at the concept of, so let's say in this case, let's just go simple, a haunted house, right? They go with their friend to a house that's purportedly haunted to do an investigation, poke around. Some part of them is deeply afraid. So they are more prone to react with with anger or outrage or you know maybe puff themselves up a little bit like you said Mm -hmm. throw their shirt off and say come at me ghost (laughs) you know it's posturing it's posturing it happens in the animal kingdom you know animals puff themselves up they do things like that birds strut around and it's kind of like a defense mechanism sometimes you know that great horned owls puff themselves up and then Mm -hmm. after that we have the flatwoods monster (laughs) yeah exactly Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like the whole paranormal is reflection, is projection of ourselves. I see like if there is some kind of elusive other that almost never its true form, its true face is what we actually report or see. Mm -hmm. There is something being reflected back at us and maybe not even from the side of the paranormal, the elusive other, like maybe it's not a shapeshifter. Maybe we are just the ones projecting something onto it. It's from us what we're projecting. Yeah. Let's say uh, I talked recently with somebody about the concept of the Jungian archetype of anima or animus with women, but like the Mm -hmm. anima, it's the intrinsic femininity of a man. And when Mm -hmm. a man, per these Jungian theories, falls in love with a woman, he projects his own anima upon the woman. So he falls in love with what he is projecting upon another woman, not with the woman necessarily as a person, as her whole Mm -hmm. individual autonomous entity. Mm -hmm. Um, And I see kind of that as an aspect of the paranormal, what we see or how we perceive it or what we get from the paranormal is what we are projecting onto it from ourselves kind of a paranormal anima animus situation yeah yeah i mean that's that's an excellent way to approach it and i think that reflection then can shape an experience you know i i do fully believe that there are things that are angry that they do wish harm all that stuff but a lot of times that does come from a place of misunderstanding and a place of fear and so if you're projecting that onto an experience then yeah you're gonna 
you're going to interpret what happens through that lens, you know, like the, the fae, the, the, the fair folk, mm-hmm. fairies, all those sorts of kind of nature things, elemental things. They are definitely tricksters. But the there's a concept I've heard about stuff like that that kind of resonated with me and I think relates a little bit to what you said is there are things that are neither good nor bad. They just have a different sense of ethics, a different sense of morality. So if you have something you're experiencing that just doesn't communicate or feel the same way you do, then for sure you're going to be projecting that part of you onto that that experience. Yeah, it's like I said the other day, there was a tweet from Morgan Daimler exactly talking about that, what you're talking about, um, how mm. people attribute to the fairies either they're good or they're bad or this or that, and how there is no good or bad because they do not comply to a human morality uh, spectrum. But uh, wh- what I commented is like nature is neither good nor bad. Nature just is, and fairies mm-hmm. are a part of nature. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I can for sure agree with that. I think in order to understand things, we try to sometimes put them in a box that gives us a baseline, you know, like, okay, this starts here, and I can understand it by looking at it compared to this thing. But when you talk about the paranormal, if these things exist, which, you know, I believe in a lot of things, because I believe so much is possible, there are going to be things that we just don't have a baseline for. We just don't, because it is so beyond our understanding um, how they function. Like you said, with nature, there, there are things that happen and that's just what happens you know that's just how it occurs that's the law of that thing and there's nothing for us to compare it to because we just aren't that thing you know exactly so yeah. I mean, I as a biologist can like go into, let's say, parasites, mm-hmm. and especially parasites that do really nasty shit to their host and even lead to the death of the host. Like, mm-hmm. are they bad necessarily? Because they are organisms molded by millions of years of evolution to do a certain thing like that to yeah. stay alive. What they're doing is for their own survival. So there is no mora- morality there. And even whether it's good or bad b- depends on the eye of the beholder. <laughs> And yeah. the perspective, you know? Yeah, exactly. And maybe maybe even the level of intention and, and consciousness of the thing you're dealing with. You know, if it's just something working on instinct, then that's the instinct. It's neither good nor bad. Mm-hmm. So I, f- I feel like in that case, we owe it to that thing to sort of approach it with caution and do our best to set the best possible scenario, you know? Okay, so whether something will act in a good or bad way depends on its capability to make a choice about it. Mm-hmm. Obviously, a parasitic worm cannot make a choice of whether it will parasitize a host or not because it needs to in order to stay alive and reproduce. Mm-hmm. But whether we will kill somebody over a, a property dispute or not, that you know, we totally make a choice about that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We can make that decision. Yes. So are we saying that the paranormal is not maybe evolved to a certain point where it can make a decision? Is it a natural instinctual thing? Um, I think some of it is. As far as my belief structure, I, like I said, I believe that so many things are possible. So it's, it's also a good descriptor to say, I don't disbelieve anything, you know, like, (laughs) but there are different systems I've read about and belief structures I've read about where it's like various layers of things. And so when it comes to the paranormal, I believe there are various types of, like, there are many types of animals, there are many types of insects, there are many types, you know, there are many types of these things. And you brought up the phenomena earlier, which is something that, you know, the great author, whatever you want to say it, I have over time prescribed to, and I think 
this phenomenon will recognize people who respond to it. And my personal belief is that I believe there's a little bit of a choice there, like, you know, kind of like a moth being attracted to a light, like you might get a little bit of attention from it because you are a certain way. And then you it puts something in your path and then you respond to it. Like Mm -hmm. I have had things in my life where I look back on it and I'm like, well, that's just ridiculous. And, you know, I have to kind of laugh about it and just the way things felt guided from one point to the next. And I didn't mean like every step of my journey, but things that repeatedly show up in my life uh, that feel like I've gotten a little bit of a nudge. And whether you believe that is a deity or the phenomenon, which I think is an interesting topic because it's like a consciousness, but not necessarily a, a deity. And I believe all those things can exist. So I almost feel like the phenomenon is a support role (laughs) in a way to (laughs) whatever else is is going on. It's like, okay, this person needs to be nudged this way. So so we will nudge them that way. And, And that's kind of a bit of the perspective I have on that. You see, that is exactly how I feel about the paranormal and how I felt on my life. Like it acts in a very subtle way. And a very like reality, material reality, what we mm-hmm. can prove via science is the more aggressive, hard, tangible stuff. You know, it's the hero of the story, but the paranormal is the support role that can maybe shift the focus of the hero uh, from one side to another side. Let's say um, I see magic as that. Like I don't see magic as working in very uh, explicit, grandiose ways of changing the fabric of the universe, but it kind sways how the universe will uh, express itself in certain ways in a very subtle fashion. Yeah. And you know what? I really, I really love that description that you just said of, of magic, because I fully believe that we are capable of that sway. And I think how I described it to someone recently, it's, it's sort of like, I feel like magic is like knowing a line of code that you can put into the development language of the universe to maybe get a function or, or something. And a lot of that is based on belief or the system or things like that. So mm-hmm. I definitely like that description you used because it's you know there are things you do that you you see results from and 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 you're right it is very very subtle like um for me, I think the thing that has popped into my head is, so a little bit of background is I consider myself lucky because my parents always encouraged me and, and I have an older sibling to kind of ask questions and pursue these things. And um, I think in their own ways had beliefs in, in a greater thing than ourselves. And so, you know, when I was in second grade and I started watching the X-Files because so many people of like our generation got into this because of like the X-Files and Including unsolved me. mysteries. <laughs> yeah, inclu- yeah, and unsolved mysteries and in search of, you know, they were just like, okay, I don't get what you're doing here, but as long as you're not afraid and you feel safe, you do it. You read all those weird books. You you watch this show, you, you know. So I feel like I was very lucky in that aspect is that I was kind of primed to to be ready to accept this thing. And so now when I look back on certain periods, you know, because I'm interested in all that sort of stuff and, and something 
that I feel has materialized for me, if we're talking about those little nudges from the phenomenon, is I've had to move around a lot during my adult life because of just jobs and different situations and unfortunately some not so great things that have happened to me. But I would always end up somewhere that had a very strong association with the paranormal. And I, I a lot of times I wouldn't know anything about it. Like um, where I grew up, I recently picked up, um, well, not recently, but I was reading Josh Kutchen's book, Where the uh, Footprints End. Uh-huh. I think that's where it is. I think I'm getting mixed, the title mixed Yeah, it is Michelle, Where the Footprints End. Yeah. And I open the book, I start reading the first chapter, and lo and behold, the very first thing they talk about is something that happened like two miles from where I grew up, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And then I moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I was down the road from the demon house of Brownsville Road, which I did not even know about till I got there. Mm-hmm. And then things like that kept happening. You know, I, I moved to another city and there was something like that. You, you told you have some kind of tie, ties with Hellier, the town. I, I do. So, yeah, I moved to uh, Atlanta and I was very near a paranormal place there. And then I met my now husband and he was finishing his schooling and he got um, we were living separate in separate towns at that point and he got his assignment and it was for Somerset Kentucky and so that featured very prominently in Hellier and in fact he started at the same time they were filming the second season and so I was there <laughs> when when all the stuff was being filmed in Somerset and I I did not even know about Hellier at that point the funny part is when he got his assignment to go there to finish his schooling everyone was telling us this place is a little weird. It's a little weird. (laughs) And then, you know, I start driving up to visit him every weekend. And we find out about the Somerset Pyramid. And we're like, this place is really weird. And just, (laughs) you know, weird things happen. And then I will never forget, it was my older sibling who watched Hellier. And then the second season was coming out. And they told my mother to watch Hellier. So my mother watched Hellier. And she calls me and says, where are you right now? (laughs) And I'm like, (laughs) I'm in Somerset. Why? What's up? She's like, you have to watch this. And so I sat there and watched it and found out about it. Like it was going on as I was transitioning to living there. It's it's things like that. And then where I live now, which again was based on a job placement, is very known in the area for having paranormal activity. Like I just keep ending up in these places that have that. And I mean, everywhere has a little bit of that, but like, I don't even know about it till I get there. And then, you know, someone says, oh, the whole street downtown is haunted and everybody here believes in ghosts. And I'm just like, okay. (laughs) I I see it as the paranormal nudging you throughout your whole life with what you perceive as luck, but it's nudging you towards nests of the paranormal. Yeah, that's what it feels like. And and then, you know, I end up having really great experiences or getting to talk to other people interested in it. Because the funny thing is, when I was growing up, none of my friends were into it. None of them. I had one friend who kind of watched the X-Files a little bit, but no one wanted to talk to me about it. No one wanted to talk to me about fairies or magic or ghosts or anything. They all thought it was super weird. And then even when I was a young adult, that was happening. But because I kept ending up in these weird places, I always found, you know, a few people I could talk to because I had to start over a bunch of times. Yeah. So that was kind of an interesting aspect of it. It seems also that you have lived a very liminal life. Yes. Always this liminality of your transitioning to a completely new place, a completely new way of life. And maybe mm-hmm. this even contributed to all the paranormal stuff. Yeah, yeah, because I, I will say a lot of folks say that liminality is open to the paranormal. And I, you know, that makes sense because it is a time of openness. It is a time where things are not anchored down, they're unsure. So 
I can see a lot of that stuff seeping in, you know? Yes. Okay. When, when we're talking about the X-Files, like I also grew up loving the X-Files, my yeah. favorite show ever. I watched mm-hmm. it like seven or eight times the whole show. I did not watch the newest season, unfortunately, because it came <laughs> out when I kind of stopped caring. But like right now I'm rewatching the X-Files. My favorite episodes are the obviously like the comedic ones. My favorite episode ever is uh, Bad Blood. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, How Is He Chunks From Outer Space, mm-hmm. uh, Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose, that kind of stuff and yeah like i ponder all the conspiracy alien nonsense that you know that was interesting to me when i was a kid or teenager edgy teenager but like mm-hmm. now as an adult when i'm living a life that's pretty shitty adult life is hard and shitty mm-hmm. i love these whimsical episodes and i think about them how they more properly convey high strangeness and the paranormal even more than any of the scary episodes yeah yeah and that's those are some of my favorite episodes too just because high strain strange is that it's it's strange it's weird it's you know it's lord kimboat <laughs> yeah it's just like what just happened i mean one of my most prominent experiences that i had was just goofy as all hell okay can, can you share that one um okay. i think it's very appropriate to bring it up now so you know I, I talked about i've talked about like the shadow people i saw at waverly and how that was a little weird and stuff but there's this one experience um because i love cryptids right i i love the idea of cryptids and i love them so much it was summertime i think i was visiting my parents house from college they have a front porch that's kind of higher up and a sloping yard and then a little wall at the bottom of the yard, right? So I can sit on the front porch and it's a rural area and it's nighttime and there's like a very faint orange streetlight across the street, right? And I'm sitting there and I look and as I've told people this story over the years, the only word I can come up with is it looked like there was a pair of socks walking themselves across the yard, <laughs> hopped over the 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 stone wall and I didn't see it cross the street. And I remember just, and it was, it was like late twilight. So it was dark, but I could still kind of see. And I remember I was out there by myself just watching these things like, what <laughs> in the hell is that? And I thought maybe it's one of those tuxedo cats, you know, a black cat with the white socks. But once it got to the wall, there was enough of the orange light to illuminate it. And there was no cat attached to it. And I'm like, it is still one of the strangest things I've ever seen. And and what I can equate it to is like a mini version of the Fresno Nightcrawlers. Okay, they were white socks. Yeah, they were like, (laughs) it was like this tiny pair of legs or socks just walking themselves across the yard. And but like, were they two separate socks, like completely separated from each other? Or were they joined together in some way? It looked like they were separated and kind of hopping along. It was so strange. It was just so terribly strange. And I I mean, I stared and I watched and I have I've not been able to to come up with any explanation for it except just something was going about its business crossing the yard. It was not a rabbit, it was not a cat. Okay, my my idea in my head immediately is uh, two squirrels because you know when squirrels run, they have those puffy tails that are that stand upright. So kind of maybe it could look like a sock. Yeah, kind of. But again, it was you know it was the summertime. There was no tree in the yard. They were definitely light colored white. I mean, it could have been a squirrel, but it was just to to me at the moment. I remember thinking like, did I just see a fairy? Like what? (laughs) 
was that, and it freaked me out so bad. I just went back in the house and like, I'm done. I'm done sitting out here. <laughs> I'm going inside just because I had to process it. Like I wasn't even scared. It was just, you know, mm-hmm. it, it makes me think of that stuff. Like um, when people describe the Jersey devil or say things like it's got the head of a goat and the tail of a lion and this, it may not necessarily have those things. It's just, you have no baseline to compare it to. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's lost in translation. You know? Yeah. When somebody wants to document all this and report on it, uh, they take everything literally. <laughs> yeah. And so like, but but that is the best thing I can compare it to was little pair of socks walking themselves across the yard and, and, and it hopped, it hopped on the wall and hopped down. And so I, I have no idea. Uh, did you add that to liminal earth i have not i have not but maybe i should (laughs) yeah it really does sound like uh, the type of stuff that people put there i know of this uh, story vaguely i don't know if i read it there or somewhere else but essentially somebody stumbled upon a levitating cigarette that was smoking itself that's amazing yeah like that is the kind of stuff that is just what is going on there. But I, I love it. I think it's wonderful because to me, that kind of stuff, like these these goofy, you know, just strange experiences we can have, I think it just speaks to how like wonderful and amazingly weird the world is and the universe is and, and, and just there are so many things going on we just don't understand. Yes. You know? Wow. I, th- that's the stuff I love. <laughs> like... My favorite cases, when we talk about the paranormal, I love cryptids and especially the high strangeness cases. But when I'm talking, thinking about goofy cases or high strangeness, it's always alien abductions for me and not the, you know, surgery kind, though mo- some of them do have. But let's say I love the Carl Higdon abduction. Yeah. <laughs> That's just so goofy. I love the Betty Andreessen stuff or however you pronounce her last name. I never found out. Is it Andreessen or something? Mm. But like, sure, it has the surgery stuff, but then it goes a whole other route with this goofy nonsense. A phoenix bird burning and then her communicating with a gray worm. Like at some point, she even saw the grays take, pluck an eyeball off one of those uh, lemur-like aliens that she saw and put Mm. the eye in its own eye socket. (laughs) It's just... It's just so weird. It's just so strange. And, you know, that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Like, like maybe to that entity, that was just the most normal thing in the world to do. Like, I need the eye now. So... Give me the eye. It's my turn. You know, it's, it's like they. Like, <laughs> so I, I don't know how aware you are of the Betty Andres and stuff, but essentially she went through some red place and there were these buildings and all over the walls were crawling these lemur-like things. That's oh. how she described them. But they did not have heads, but rather two stalks that were ending in giant eyes at the end of the mm-hmm. stalks. So oh it's like, are these aliens farming these lemur-like things to take their eyes <laughs> Yeah, like there's, that's the thing is there's, there's reasons for everything, but it's sometimes reasons that we can just never hope to understand. Like, Mm -hmm. it's it's just not gonna because we don't have that baseline. And, you know, even yeah, admittedly, there can be scary things or angry things, but like it's just even some of these situations you can go into and they end up being like a little silly or a little goofy or, you know, it's just something you look back on and you're like, that was just so strange. And 
all you can do is laugh at it a little bit. Yes. Another case that we all know is Pancake Joe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I always, like when I see on UFO Twitter, all of these UFO bros talking about Lou Elizondo and all those people, I comment, who cares about him? Let's talk about Pancake Joe. <laughs> I use Pancake Joe as a meme of just a personification of the high strangeness aspect. It's it's what I want to see talked about, not, you know, nuts and bolts stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, I can't remember her name, but the old lady in the UK who was visited by three tiny aliens with butterfly wings and glass. Oh, um, I know what you're talking about, but I can't remember her name either. So they were dancing around in her house and uh, trying to do something with her Christmas tree. Um, and she offered them minced meat pies. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's what you. I mean that's what you do. It's just like, okay, what are what is the protocol here for when something like that approaches you? And I, mm-hmm. I guess you know some things are a little bit universal. I mean, if again these things can some things sense energy or or psychical energy or waves or whatever, if you even project that sort of okay, you're a, you're a guest here now, so I'm going to treat you like a guest. Maybe some part of that is actually picked up and it's just like, well, we're here now, so have some pie, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and it is like uh, these weird, scary situations are kind of dispelled via hospitality. You know that Rob Christofferson on Our Strange Skies oftentimes mm-hmm. talks about the case of the two boys which were attacked by aliens and then one of the boys offered the aliens water or something and that dispelled the situation. Yeah, yeah, and you know, that's that's a really good point in in like even thinking about my experience in in Waverly with the shadow people like the the one I saw really clearly was disturbing to me in in just that sort of visceral like it's not moving in a very natural way it's it's something I don't understand so I had a little bit of fear but ultimately you know I could think okay I'm just gonna be hospitable towards this I am mm-hmm. in 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 that case being in Waverly you are literally in an institution that is caring for people. So you think of it, okay, maybe this was a patient here. Maybe they're happy to see visitors. Maybe they're, you know, so you try your very best to sort of put out that feeling of hospitality and like, maybe we won't be on the same page, but I will try to understand you. And if it gets too much, then I will back away. And, you know, I find that way can really facilitate some interesting experiences and communication. You know, I see this form of podcasting I'm doing, like bringing up so many of these cool points and ideas that I never thought about, like right now. And this may sound dark. I have run across a few times in my life people on the street with deformities that are very terrifying. And my Mm -hmm. gut reaction is always fear. And I did not have this opportunity to engage with them in any way. But it's kind of like with the paranormal, we see something that induces this instinctual fear in us. And then based on how we decide to engage with the phenomenon is what we'll get back. Because I see like if you stumble upon somebody with a deformity and it terrifies you for a second, you can show kindness and hospitality to the person or you can be the asshole who, you know, tries to make fun of them or reject them and other them. Mm -hmm. We, We seem to be doing the same with the paranormal, but with the paranormal, we get the reaction back, uh, reflected back at us. So I I see that the paranormal kind of forces us to be turned inside out 
forces this gut reaction and personality out of us to react the the most basic way that we would to show the world who we are as a person. Yeah, and and that's an that really is an excellent way to describe it. And I think I think sometimes, you know, we need to be gentle with ourselves as well. Like, you know, even with you talking to me about these these private feelings you've had, like if it's instinctual, it's it's going to happen, but it's what you do in the moment after. Yes. You know, and like for me as a person, I've had some things in my life that were very serious threats to my physical being. So I no longer enjoy like thrill rides or roller coasters or whatever. Like to me, that's just like no good, right? So I've had to learn to manage that feeling that was taught to me by this abhorrent behavior. And so I feel like when people are able to look at themselves and really say, why am I reacting like this? What can I examine about? this and and have that tool set to get past that moment, then I think that's something that can be very important, especially for people who are investigating the paranormal. And, you know, boundaries are fine. If you go onto a, a very haunted battlefield and you are once in the army and you see an apparition and the apparition and presses a button within you and you have to say, I have to stop, that's also absolutely acceptable, which I think it's far more acceptable than posturing, which is another thing people do when they're afraid is they, like we said earlier, they puff up, they get bigger. So Uh I think we have to be more gentle with knowing our own limitations and knowing when you are pushing outside your own box and when you're maybe pushing something that isn't going to serve you or help the situation. And I think that's something that, you know, you you talk about like with, with paranormal in the media, you know, there might be people who are actively afraid and, and maybe they have to be pushing themselves through something for for the show or for the gig or whatever. And ultimately it's not serving anything. And I do see that a lot of what we have, the masks of the paranormal, are products of our fear towards it. We create this straw man, we create this punching bag, mm-hmm. you know, this uh, monster that we can blame for the fear that we feel that is actually a part of ourselves. Going back to the idea I had of disfigured people, are you aware of Charlie No Face or the green man in Pennsylvania. Um, I am actually not familiar with that one. Okay. Strangely. So this was a man actually who really, you know, was a real person, Raymond Robinson. Mm-hmm. Um, he very early in his life had an accident and he was left without his nose, without his eyeballs, a v- mm-hmm. very disfigured face. And he enjoyed walking across the streets at night, but people saw him like from their cars and stuff like that and created, mm-hmm. created this urban legend of Charlie No Face or the green man because apparently his skin was kind of glowing in the night because his disfiguration was from an electrical accident he had in childhood. Mm. I I don't know how that makes sense, but okay. (laughs) Well, you know, sometimes I wonder if his skin was very smooth or very shiny because of the healing process, kind of like when you get a scar. Yeah, it might be reflecting lights or something. There there are photos of him online. Um, But this is a very uh, famous case of somebody who actually lived who inspired a boogeyman in urban legends. But people who knew him in his life said like he was the kindest person they ever knew. So it's very interesting how we just react to something that we do not understand 
happened at the moment, and then what we do with that fearful reaction further shapes the phenomenon. Like, he has nothing to do with the boogeyman that sparked, inspired by him. He was a person mm-hmm. for himself. But the boogeyman, the monster, the, the green man or Charlie No-Face is just a product of our reaction to him and what we then used it further on for. And I see that with the paranormal. Like, there is some elusive other, there is something true to the paranormal. It's true face that we will never know. But all of these other things, like a dog man, a gray alien, you know, a demon, all of these are just products that we create from the fearful reaction we have of what the phenomenon truly is. Yeah, that's definitely something to consider because when things are just so big, we try and put them in a way in our own minds that we can that we can understand. I think that does create some of those some of those reactions for sure. Now, uh, I want to go into a case that has been perplexing me ever since I read Bud Hopkins' book, Missing Time. And I thought maybe I could read it to you, but uh, it would take so long because the paragraph is giant. <laughs> but essentially, you know what Bud Hopkins did. He was the Walt Disney of alien abduction. <laughs> Yeah, He was obsessed with aliens doing experiments on people and, oh, they want to take our tissue samples to, I don't know, breed with us and overpopulate the planet. And then whatever David Jacobs later on said, the great hybrid invasion. From what I understand, Bud Hopkins as a child had some medical issues. I don't want to now assume which ones, but he Mm -hmm. needed to go through very painful, scary uh, forms of therapy back in those old days. And he had medical trauma from that. So he went into this whole alien abduction business already with that trauma in mind. And let's say he's exposed to stories, uh, uh, let's say, with Betty Andresen. And he was because he wrote about her in his book. But let's say Carl Higdon as well, which has less surgery. Of course, he would start projecting like, oh, this is not a whimsical, goofy thing. This is sinister and dark. They want to you know, take samples from us, blah, blah, blah. And this is what he projected onto every, every witness that he worked with with, especially when he went on to do hypnotic regressions himself. Like, I believe that what we get from hypnosis is not just uh, the narrative and experience of the witness, but rather it's a co-creation between the elusive other, the witness, and the psychotherapist. Yeah, because things like that become, you know, part of us, especially when they happen to us young. There are so many studies and so many things now about the the body mind is what I've heard people call it. Like you have your consciousness, but then you have so many automated responses in your central nervous system and your autonomic nervous system and all these things that you are taking in so much information constantly all the time, right? So yeah. there is so much that is automated. It, it can get even buried like in your body, in your cells, in your tissue. There's still trying to figure out how all this stuff works because there are things like you talk about hypnosis there are things like um people will get a massage or they'll get different physical treatments done and it should be relaxing it should be whatever but it might release a flood of emotions and that's because your body associates something there and you know that is something I've experienced myself and even you know going back to admitting having a little bit of um, reluctance with interacting with you my no matter how aware I try to be 
because of the things that have happened to me in a very profound way, much like, you know, I, I cannot imagine the childhood he went through with mm-hmm. the medical things that may have happened to him. Mm-hmm. That's going to be there. That is going to be there until you really go through a lot to process it and, and purge it from your system the best you can. So yeah, absolutely. He might be, heck, he could even be, even if the psychotherapist wasn't leading him, he could be dredging up old, old, old memories of his own treatments. You oh, know, he, he was acting as the psychotherapist. He was acting the psych. Oh, he, yeah, he yeah. was projecting his own fears onto witnesses. That's the thing. I'm going to go into it, but I want to point this out. So, with Betty Andresen, one of the first mm-hmm. abductee experiences, and her experiences had the you know medical prodding and testing and surgeries and stuff like that. But she had seven children and was mm-hmm. in her like mid twenties or even early twenties, I think, and had a hysterectomy after having seven children. I can imagine that she was you know at the doctor quite often mm-hmm. and experiencing all the probing from doctors and medical procedures so i think that may have influenced her having this kind of experience with aliens during her hypnotic regression but uh, also something we see with betty hill mm-hmm. is she also had a hysterectomy and there are many other women who claim alien abduction scenarios that had hysterectomies it's a very fascinating thing i should go into yeah you know that is something while i have an overall interest in a lot of these different topics that's something like the actual abductions themselves is something i don't have as much knowledge about so mm-hmm. Learning that, you know, kind of gives me thinking about it now sort of a different perspective because all these things are big changes to the body. They're big changes to a person. And if you are, you know, a woman who puts a lot of stock into your biological womanhood, no matter how okay you are, that thing about you changing can have great psychological effects on you. So I definitely can see where some of that could be projected onto an abduction experience for sure. Yes, that's so fascinating. And it would tie into why this whole idea of breeding programs and stuff like that. Wow. I don't want to say anything more about that until I have my facts okay. straight, but it's a very fascinating thing that I just now realized talking with you. Uh, but getting back to Bud Hopkins, so this case that perplexed me, like this uh, woman, when she was a girl, maybe eight years old, uh, went to get eggs from uh, the barn and ended up having a cut on her foot that was bleeding profusely and nobody could explain it. So when she went to Bud as an adult now, he regressed her back to that moment and yeah, she was abducted by aliens while in the barn and blah, blah, blah. But her abduction experience was the most positive one in that book. Like she said that she was laying on a table and communicating with this gray who felt like a grandfatherly uh, mm-hmm. type of entity. And they were talking about all the animals and plants that she likes and that she has around her farm. And then they were talking about the plants and animals on his home planet. And he was showing her imagery of all the wonderful plants and animals. That's the beautiful part of it. The other part of the story is w- what Bud wants to get out of her what did he do to you where did he cut you you know that kind of stuff that's the only stuff that he cared about yeah and I've been hypnotized myself a couple of times um, through therapy and the way I was hypnotized it's it's a very interesting experience because I remember it and I was aware but I could kind of hear myself responding mm-hmm. without thinking and the individual who treated me after my very big trauma never used questions like that they were very careful to not say things so when I see that in media or or when you talk about things like that it's 
it's just it can be it can be a little confusing because people are in a suggestible state mm-hmm. and like you said it's very easy for that person to project what they think happened onto the person being hypnotized and then if you want to take it a step further you know if these aliens are abducting people and they do have you know anesthetics or drugs or things that put you in these these suggestible states you could be having these experiences and like in that one okay so maybe she was under this anesthetic and the more benevolent entity was trying to talk to her about nice things and and all that stuff so it's it's like them implanting things another way but then they get back and they do the hypnosis and then you have a psychotherapist who's trying to lead them another direction you know at that point you've kind of corrupted the memory like what what do you even know that that point yes and uh, you're exactly right how problematic it is to you to lead the witnesses during a hypnosis because they're in a suggestible state and they are hyper aware. They can take any cue from the environment as inspiration to kind of react to it, even mm-hmm. if the psychotherapist is not aware of that certain cue. Like an ambulance can be heard from outside and then that can totally sway your narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I was paraphrasing what, what Bud was asking her, but when you go read the transcripts, it's all, you know, very leading the witness. But then he brought her back to some some incident she had as a teenager when she was supposedly abducted again. And mm-hmm. in this incident, she was abducted by a group of aliens who held up a party for her. <laughs> and it it was a very uh, whimsical story and very joyful and happy. Oh, that sounds that sounds fantastic. Yes, I would love that. <laughs> and she felt like the alien that was speaking to her was female, and probably mm-hmm. the daughter or granddaughter of that grandfatherly alien from before. Mm-hmm. And she was congratulating her on helping them uncover some scientific thing, whatever, on their planet. You know. <laughs> It's very whimsical and happy. And and you know what it's it's like why why can't that be real? Yeah. You know, why why does everything have to be a demon or sinister experimentation or whatever if if these other beings or entities or or whatever have feelings and thoughts and and even if we don't have a baseline of comparison for moralities you know to me what you just told me sounds like a very normal thing to do mm-hmm. <laughs> you know almost like hospitality again they were saying thank you thank yes. you for what you did for us that's a, that seems like the most natural thing in the world but the thing with bud is he hyper focused during that mm-hmm. uh story on the fact that they supposedly took a sample of blood or tissue from her nose like it was oh we're having a party thanking you for all this that you did oh can we also stick this up your nose (laughs) you know that kind of stuff yeah well and you know it's funny you talk about projection because if these these aliens were caring about her well-being maybe they were checking something like (laughs) hey in our environment is she okay after we did whatever we did to make her pass out you know it's just like ascribing nefarious purposes to everything i really don't know like what there is from bud and what is from her like Mm -hmm. i doubt that this woman said that they stuck something up her nose during this party i think it's just bud trying to push that narrative because later Mm -hmm. on he said that this whole party business was a screen memory implanted by the greys who were doing sinister medical experiments on her but wanted to anesthetize her with a fantasy of a party Yeah, like, I don't know. I think this is where probably some people think I'm naive because I've had some really, really terrible things happen to me. And I know that there are nefarious purposes in the world. But like, sometimes 
things are, I don't know, I think things are what they appear to be. Like the aliens had a party for her. <laughs> I don't know why that's so hard to believe. I mean, you see a, a, a ghost walking down the hallway and you know what? The ghost is just walking down the hallway. It's not trying to do anything to you. It's just doing its thing. Yeah. You know, it's, it's sometimes it's just a coexistence. Like the universe is so vast and our world is so vast. And there are, we have instruments now that can measure different dimensions and quantum entanglement and everything is so vast that, you know, sometimes I think things are just what they seem to be, you know? Mm -hmm. Sometimes things are so vast that you can't help but wonder, is anything ever uh, simple anymore out there? That's, you know, that is the converse of it is, is like, yeah, there, there must be layers to everything. But, you know, I think it's good to have a system of checks and balances for yourself and to be aware of things. And sometimes, yeah, yeah, maybe sometimes you're like, okay, maybe this isn't as simple as I think it is. But I think it's important to start mm -hmm. at the face value because so much of how we respond to things, like you said, is a projection of ourselves and also very deeply buried things that have happened to us as well. Yes. The, the, like I see buds being obsessed with these surgeries and screen mm -hmm. memories to anesthetize us. I see him projecting his own medical trauma upon his uh, very suggestive uh, witnesses that he's uh, conducting these hypnotherapies on. Um, yeah. Another thing with that woman is when she got out of the UFO during that teenage experience after the party, she saw a deer, I think, from what I remember, and then felt the deer was telling her like, bye bye, like farewell. And then it disappeared, the deer. Yeah. And let me tell you, that is something I love about high strangeness in the paranormal is when, like with screen memories, you know, people talk about owls and deer are big screen memory like mm -hmm. motifs i've had a very weird deer experience but like i think there's something in me because i'm also someone who laughs a little bit at hyperbole i think one of my very favorite things that i like to embrace is like when the phenomenon or the paranormal or the aliens or whoever try to be as inconspicuous as possible and they just are like even more weird it's like here's a nice deer <laughs> You like deer, deer are pretty, and now it's disappeared, and they've just kind of like made things worse. It's like, well, we tried. You yes. know, it's like, <laughs> yes. It's, oh, a, it's a very relatable feeling. <laughs> and I think like, why can't a weird deer just be a weird deer? Like yeah. a deer that somebody sees and it disappears. Why does it need to be an implanted false memory by the greys? You know, why can't it just yeah. be a weird deer that disappeared? Yeah, weird shit happens. I mean, it just does. And, you know, it's just when you start to get into things like all that, like just, just weird things that happen, time slips, dimensional slips, things like that. I mean, the physics of our world is just so fragile that maybe it was just a weird ass deer yeah like i don't know <laughs> that's just that kind of thing i think sometimes just happens yes our mutual friend puxley um mm -hmm. he had three run-ins with a white stag three times yeah. in his life and yeah. I found that a very beautiful experience, among other cool experiences that he had, not not always negative or traumatizing. Like he keeps stumbling upon four or five leaf clovers. We chat a lot, and he sends me a voice, not not voice, but video clips when mm -hmm. he's walking around the countryside over there. And like sometimes he would uh, film that he stumbled upon a four or five leaf clover while talking with me. Once when he was talking with me, this is before we recorded our episode. He was mm -hmm. walking around 
some along some tra- trail and on the video an owl landed right in front of him while he's talking <laughs> with me the host of tracing owls yeah and it's you know and that kind of goes back to the whole thing with the nudges like if you are putting out you are receptive and will receive these things, I think they're more likely to happen to you. I mean, there are endless psychological arguments that you could have. Oh, the human brain looks for patterns. Oh, this happens and that happens. Mm -hmm. Okay, maybe sometimes that's true. But when you look at something like that, you know, this is something that happens to him. It's it's like I had a friend who every time he walked under a streetlight, it would go out. We don't know why. It got to the point we would send him walking up and down the road and the streetlights would go out. And it was just a weird thing that happened to him. And he was just like, this is a thing that happens to me. Just, I think some people are just in the fabric of our reality and our universe. That's, that's kind of their role. That's what they do. They're receivers. They're experiencers, things like that. Are they re-mythologizers of the land? Mm -hmm. I did an episode about a guy who was dressing up as a Bigfoot thing in Selbyville, Delaware, and scaring people who were driving (laughs) along the roads until they started, you know, gathering in posses trying to shoot him. So he stopped doing that (laughs) after a few months. That's the Selbyville Swamp Monster. He did this in 64. And decades after he stopped doing that, people would still report seeing the monster. So it's like his playfulness trying to hoax this monster and have fun with people generated i don't know an egregore or tulpa or imprinted mythology back onto the land where now he re-energized the high strangeness of this place yeah and and i like your use of the word energy because i was just thinking about that it's it's like an energetic cycle you know energy and electricity and all that is moving through us all the time and I definitely think, you know, especially with the, you talk about tulpas and egregores, I believe those things are possible. I'm not someone who believes it's the answer to everything. Yeah. Um, but I believe that, you know, like you said, you're, you're kind of giving back in a way, you know, it's, it's cyclical, just like there's a, you know, the cycle with predators and prey and, and trees and plants and, and mm-hmm. everything. Maybe, you know, we are given these experiences and we give these experiences back either by talking to them about people or participating. And by participating, we were like batteries, maybe, you know, we re-energize it, like you said. And we re-energize it with our storytelling and our mythology and folklore i was like and sorry for going from topic to topic man oh that's fine (laughs) like talking with you it's like i'm bouncing off you all of these ideas and coming to some cool conclusions i was recently thinking about the chupacabra in puerto rico Mm -hmm. you know in 95 it started happening but like back in the 70s also in puerto rico there was the vampire of mocha which was also a thing that spawned from mass deaths of livestock and it Mm -hmm. is like every few decades these mass deaths of livestock coupled with these droughts and stuff keep occurring obviously because of the droughts maybe predators are losing their minds and killing everything they on site you know mm-hmm. but these natural cyclical things that occur trigger us to form mythologies of monsters so we can re-energize the land in some way and this keeps going on and on throughout decades yeah that's a that's an interesting way to look at it and you know there are so many things that we just don't understand about that kind of thing and like you said if there are droughts then maybe predators are being driven out of where they normally hunt mm-hmm. and all that and they're perfectly reasonable explanations but you know 
at the same time, if the people who live there believe that every 20 years, the chupacabra rises up and has to feast, like like the X-Files episode where yeah. the guy comes yes. out every so many years and, and has to eat the livers. And I mean, who's to say there isn't something like that? And we're, we're perpetuating it possibly in our own way, but maybe it's also just a real thing. Yeah, yeah. But I, I do think it's much more complex. Like, I do think yeah. there are these cyclical natural occurrences that are totally independent of us. But we mm-hmm. as the reactors, we are we are entities who are here to react to what it, mm-hmm. what nature is doing around us. Like, nature is going to keep doing this stuff over and over, even without us. But we being there, present, we react to this and we trigger something. As I say, like, remythologization of the land or something. Like, we re-energize the high strangeness of the place just by reacting to these mundane natural occurrences. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a really great way to look at that because what's a performance without an audience? You know? Yes, yes, and And exactly. the audience energizes the performer and it's a symbiotic relationship. You, you actually were into puppetry. Can you maybe go into that? Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, I have reached a point in my life where I guess I can say I'm a puppeteer because I have done it a few times <laughs> now. But the thing about puppetry, I always thought was amazing. And this started when I was very, very young. Um, you know, like the labyrinth came out and the dark crystal and these, these more movies with these mysterious, wonderful creatures. And they're just so alive. If you talk about a symbiotic relationship, it is the, the, the puppeteer and the people who created that give it that illusion of life is is what the, the phrase is a lot it's the illusion of life it's it's there's something you can't put your finger on it's the way it moves the way it meets your eyes the way it does i mean you can puppeteer just about anything and the human brain will will put you know a personality to it it will do all that and so for me, I always thought that was a type of magic in and of itself, too. Yeah, I, I see it as kind of harnessing pareidolia to mm-hmm. trigger projection of personality. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like there is, um, you know, there are things you you learn when you do it and you can learn ways to move and ways to to do things. And depending on the situation and the puppet, you know, how you, you use that puppet to create what's already there in the human brain, like the expectation. Once it starts moving, there's a part of you that that has an expectation, you know, and it's interesting because I have found that with the right people who are open to it, and I'm, I'm actually one of those people, my suspension of disbelief is ridiculous, because I want to enjoy it. I want to believe it. I I want to play and experience that. And so something that I even found out when I volunteered for the center and I used to do work, um, for this really big convention that happens every year in the US called Dragon Con. And there's a puppetry program. And one of the things we would do is do demonstrations to people so they could learn about puppetry. I am not the best improviser. I prefer creature puppets that don't talk. But I discovered that I could be fully visible and someone would still respond to the puppet. Like if it was someone who like I have this kind of little blue gremlin puppet and he's really cute and really approachable and he's furry. I hold him on my hip almost like you would hold a toddler. So I am fully visible. I'm absolutely visible. It's my voice. They can see me. I would often dress in costume. So I kind of like was a little whimsical and I matched it. But I would talk to people with the puppet and it would it there's this funny moment when they would look at me and look at the puppet and look at me. And then some people you could see they're like it 
are, are they serious? Is this, are they going to talk to me? With this? Is she going to talk to me with this puppet? And then there are some people, they look at you and then it's like they make the decision. They make the decision to believe and then they start talking to the puppet and I'm not even there anymore. It's like engaging with the phenomenon. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, I would find those type of people would be more apt to accept that sort of thing, like the whimsy, the playfulness, and be able to give back. And even then, there would be sometimes hesitance, like I would talk to them with the puppet, and they would kind of, you know, mumble a response or be a little embarrassed, but then they would keep watching it, they would just watch it. And it's like they couldn't help themselves. And you know, I'm, I'm the same way, like, it's just an absolute suspension of disbelief that you have to be willing to give yourself over to because it's a space of vulnerability too. it's saying, I'm going to enter into this symbiotic situation. And I'm going to accept what you're giving me. And I think for some people that can be really frightening. Wow, you just now triggered some profound realizations in me. Like we, when we talk about like quantifying the paranormal and doing all of these psi experiments and whatever, um, Mm -hmm. studying how people engage with the paranormal, like we can use puppetry to test that out. Basically what you said is exactly how people decide to engage with the paranormal. And we, we can test somebody's boggle threshold and stuff like that just just via via whether they are willing to engage with a puppet. Yeah, I mean that's a great idea and and I think you could even take that a step further by, you know, doing a puppet that has a face, it has eyes. Um you can puppeteer a pencil, you can puppeteer you know, I've done ridiculous things where I've taken one of those takeout containers and I'm, you know, make mm-hmm. it flap like a mouth, you know, cause, <laughs> but you know, it's just in, in people look at you and you're like, oh, that's just my weird friend. But then other people laugh and they engage and they respond. So I have taken away a face. I've taken away eyes. Yes. I've taken away any recognizable feature, but the expectation or the pareidolia, like you said, is there. We have given it life we have given it a movement that's recognizable um and animators do the same thing i mean there there are amazing things with you know pixar the animation company does shorts where there's no words at all but you can follow what they're doing because we have most people you know despite where they come from despite their background most people have kind of a set of expectations of how an interactable conscious sentient entity acts and you know it's funny you can take it a step further too with people who are animists you know plants react to things it's just there's definitely ways you can test that for sure okay so is your favorite pixar short the one with the bunny (laughs) (laughs) i actually really like uh the one with the little birds on the phone line wow that's a very old one (laughs) Yeah, because it's just, you know, the big one came there and just wanted to be part of it. Yes. And there's something about that that I really love. (laughs) And and for the listeners, I'm asking Kate about the bunny one because she has a big white bunny. (laughs) I do. I do. And I have a big white bunny and I have a little gray and white bunny and they are ridiculous. They're vicious uh, based on (laughs) the photos you put today. Yeah, they're, they're, you know, everybody thinks bunnies are super docile and stuff, but they are, they are not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They are not. I think, wow, like if anybody tuned out like at the hour point or whatever, they'd be missing out on these (laughs) profound realizations we're having of just utilizing puppetry and animation to understand the paranormal. This is perfect. Todd, if you're listening, uh, you should have Kate on to (laughs) dig more into this. 
Yeah, uh, I love talking about it. This is the stuff like we should have discovered these kinds of conversations decades ago. Mm-hmm. But it's always we talk about the paranormal with fear. We don't want to acknowledge the playful side of it. And when you start talking about the playful aspects, here we're talking about pu- puppetry and animation and its ties to the paranormal. It, this is bittersweet to me. Like I'm so glad that now we have more and more people opening up to the positivity, the playfulness, the whimsiness, the goofiness of the paranormal and talking about these things now. But we should have been talking about this decades ago. Yeah, well, you know, I think there is a little bit of a shift with things where to be taken seriously, you have to be serious. But I don't think that's necessarily the case. I mean, I can do a good job with my day job and be like a complete weirdo at the same mm-hmm. time. Exactly. They're not Same mutually exclusive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I work in a giant corporation, a very corporate job. And here I'm talking about uh, white socks that uh, move on their own. I wanted to ask you, so are the white socks that you saw maybe your sock puppets? Uh, you know what? They might be because it's just, I don't know. Once you start working with puppets and everything, it's really hard not to just see anything as, as a potential. <laughs> yes. uh, are you aware of Creepy Acres? I am not aware of Creepy Acres. Okay, you should look them up. So they do uh, videos of puppetry with cryptid puppets. Oh they do my a goodness. show. I don't know how I miss them, but I will absolutely look them up. So for the listeners, I'm plugging Creepy Acres. Go check them out. Uh, They're most well-known on Instagram for those today or on this date in paranormal history. And they do wonderful artwork for every cryptid that they cover there. But uh, their main gig is the puppet show. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you for telling me about that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I really think this was a very interesting conversation. There's so much more to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, anytime you want to. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to let this be a three-hour episode, but uh, <laughs> I should have you again just to talk. Like, There's this whole cartoony aspect of the paranormal as well. This What I brought up at the start, how mm-hmm. uh, when we experience the paranormal, it's like, we, it's like cartoon logic blends with the real material objective world. We always mm-hmm. say it's dream logic, but I see it as cartoon logic. Yeah, I can definitely agree with that because, you know, dream logic tends to be disconnected and everything, but the cartoon logic tends to just be very strange and energetic. Yes. And for no particular reason at all. It just mm-hmm. is. It just is. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for doing this. Can you share with my listeners where they can find you? Where they can find me? Um, I guess kind of anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, I'm open to talking to people on Twitter. Uh, and my handle is at anti-swanky, A-N-T-I-S-W-A-N-K-Y. Um, if you do want to reach out to me, um, my kind of little business email is steampoweredmouse at gmail.com. I am working on finally getting my website up and like a little blog and stuff. So you can always reach out to me there. Yes. Well, I'll link all of that in the episode description. And I hope you're going to have more wonderful conversations. Like I know Todd will be intrigued by this. Uh, <laughs> Todd and I seem to share a lot of guests uh, because we have the similar, we have similar approaches to all this stuff only Todd is much more oriented towards you know artists uh, and creativity than me so you know that's like a whole other platform where you can talk about a whole other thing you're interested in yeah I'm just happy to help and I'm happy to talk about this stuff it's a lot of fun yes well until next time guys see you later everything is in the episode description and please stop perpetuating the scary fearful aspects (laughs) of the paranormal and try to engage with it in a more playful manner